Hello, and welcome to the first episode of the HE Live podcast. I'm your host, Polly Martin, Senior Reporter for Hydrogen Economist. Since the beginning of this decade, we've seen crisis after crisis requiring a sea change in our current energy system that reckons with the energy trilemma, that is, ensuring security, affordability, and sustainability for future generations. To discuss hydrogen's role in this shift for energy geopolitics, I'm very pleased to welcome our guest speaker, Alicia Eastman, President of Intercontinental Energy, a developer which has seen majors BP and Shell take out stakes in its export-oriented green hydrogen projects. Alicia, could you tell me a little bit about Intercontinental's pipeline of projects and the rationale behind their location? Sure, and thanks so much for having me on. Our projects are all very similar because they're all based on the same principle, which is that the least expensive green electrons in the world exist in coastal deserts. So the pressure system that is created by a lot of the ocean winds and going across a large, uniform, vast desert gives you a lot of sun during the day and a lot of wind at night. And that diurnal profile acts almost like base load power. So instead of having a capacity factor of 24%, if you were using solar, or maybe 40% if you were using wind, you can have a 70% capacity factor or higher using them together when they're coming on at different times. And so all four of our projects are like that. There's two in Western Australia, one in Oman and one in Saudi. They are also quite large. The smallest project is 25 gigawatts. And the largest one that we've announced is the Western Green Energy Hub, which is 50 gigawatts plus. So they're very large. And as I said, the land is quite uniform. And we also have some patent pending innovation around the layout, which makes it much more optimal for pricing as well. So we've basically attempted to make the least expensive hydrogen possible on the planet. And I think we do have really the best sites to do that. And then from there, we looked at the production of hydrogen, you know, the intake of water, the desalination, the electrolysis, and then also how you make ammonia with Hebrebosch for the full downstream. And we look at that entire process and optimize it so that we're getting the lowest cost end product possible. And we do think that we will be exporting ammonia from all four projects, but we also think that we'll be using green electrons and green hydrogen within the countries at the project sites, because as such large projects, we will be attracting supply chain companies, large industrials that want to have an expensive green power Lots of different entities will we want to be near us. We act as a magnet for a larger industry. And that industry will all be run with either green electrons, green hydrogen, or green ammonia. But green ammonia is mostly for shipping. What would you say are some of the key considerations for developing these export projects outside of Europe and the US? Well, I'm not sure the key considerations are that different than outside of Europe and the US or inside, but I guess the credit makes a difference in the project finance. So if you are going to get a project done in the United States, the credit is good enough that you access inexpensive capital for doing a green project. And that would not be a concern of yours, the credit rating of the country or 
or generally political risk, or I don't know why, actually, because in the last several years, I think probably the U.S. has been one of the more dangerous places for all of these activities and ratings. But at any rate, there are obviously countries that have, that are considered better credit. And so if it's a better credit country, then it needs to rely on the off-taker's credit in order to get financing, which is not really a problem. For us, we're targeting shipping, but also co-firing with ammonia. And then if the ammonia is going to be cracked back into hydrogen, we're looking at mobility and other things, but mostly, you know, really blue chip companies. So the credit is not an issue because of the offtake. So the offtake solves that issue. I think that the EU as a market to, I mean, all of the markets that you're going to be exporting to, they're all very different. I mean, they're all trying to align but they have their differences. And so there's different regulations in Japan than there are in the EU and that there are in the US. There's different carrots and sticks. There's different things that you have to keep in mind. And so I really think we are all struggling with the same thing, which is to try to have the same level playing field and have the rules and regulations and certifications be as similar as possible around the world. And, you know, there's been a lot of effort that's gone into that, but obviously we're not there quite yet since we don't have most of the regulations actually written. But there are nice, it's nice that the EU is its own large area that is dedicated to green fuels and to basically decarbonization in general. And they form one body that has one sort of set of regulations. And that is helpful. And the more that we can connect, say, G20 or at least G7, and then, you know, you can get into OECD, can connect. And the more we can do that, the better it is for all the players, just because clarity is what's necessary for investment. How have recent crises over the past couple of years, for example, the Russia-Ukraine war and the shutdown of global supply chains in 2020, influenced the development of green hydrogen supply chains? Well, I think this gets back to your introduction about the trilemma I think people are concerned about the supply, the sustainability, and the price of energy. And this has become very vivid and, and very, it's almost the only, it's only thing that people are thinking about. But I think the initial reaction was, okay, we've got to onshore everything. Like, this is ridiculous. We couldn't make our own masks. So we need to now make everything ourselves in our own country or in our own state, or I think there was a very, very quick onshoring move. And then it was kind of kind of like near shoring. And now it's moved to like friend shoring. And I think that's sort of where it's going to end up. I think that's the right answer for energy as well, not just the supply chain. I had a conversation at Macron had a Paris peace forum and the president of hydrogen was speaking about this. And I was saying that I really don't think that it's about having one best friend supplier or supplying yourself. It's about having options. I mean, optionality is what you really need. So you need to have a lot of friends who are potential providers and you not just put all of your, just not have everything in one option, like one pipeline from the Middle East to Europe is not going to solve the problem. You need to also have the ability to ship energy and you need to have the ability to have different forms of energy. And that is going to make you much safer. And 
you know, black swan events happen all the time and geopolitics change quite a lot. So, you know, it's I think it's always better to have a couple options and not just rely on one. Obviously not rely on one bad option that, you know, <laughs> as Germany have found out. But I think it, it has become a little bit more reasonable that people are now just talking about optionality. But then I think the lesson learned and what is going to make things better for the industry is this diversification. So right now, having 90% of PV coming from China is not a great situation to be in. We are a lot better with wind because there are major players in all the different markets and geographies, but there should be more companies that are making PV. And thankfully, India and the US and Saudi and a number of places are providing polysilicon subsidies or other types of sub subsidies to encourage people to make PV there. And so we have many different options for solar. And even, in, even within PV, they're using different technologies, they're using different metals, they're using different chemicals, so that you know, we really have this diversity of materials as well as geography and technologies. So within electrolyzers, we have alkaline, we have PEM, you know, we have we have lots of different types of electrolyzers that people have known about for a very long time. But there's also startups with some incredible new technology, some that don't require, you know, having a membrane at all, which means no platinum is required or and or palladium. And there's a number of different strategies in order for us to try to manage at the very, very bottom of the supply chain, the minerals and the metals and the, I don't know what you call it when it's metallurgical, the, <laughs> when it's the in between, those things also need to be managed. And it's great to see the US thinking about this for the first time and Saudi thinking about it for the first time. I mean, I attended a mining and minerals event in Saudi in January and the whole event was about ESG and mining and also how do we find these rare earths or these materials that are, you know, only in one place. How do we mine those here in Saudi or how do we do it in other locations and we do it in an ESG friendly way? And I think that's just fantastic that we're on top of it. And I think that it is a silver lining of COVID was just this realization that we had such we had the just-in-time supply chains were just so fragile. They just had no room for any type of significant event. Yeah. So the EU has set a target of importing half its hydrogen demand by 2030. And most recently, the Commission has published the Delegated Acts defining what it will class as renewable hydrogen. Do you think this clarification will help the development of export-focused projects, as well as those within the EU? I mean, I think the general feedback has been that these are not perfect regulations, but still better than not having something written down, because it is still better to have investors need clarity. I mean, they need to know, even if it's not the best news, it's, it's better than not knowing at all. So I think that they people welcome that there is something that has been agreed upon and then you know there'll probably be changes to it. But generally speaking, for us as an exporter from a very inexpensive maker of the product, and we're also focused on ammonia, not hydrogen, we're focused on using ammonia as ammonia, not necessarily cracking it back. And because we're entirely green, 
obviously for us, and we are additional because we were created entirely for this purpose. We don't run into a lot of the same problems that other types of companies or structures or production methods could run into. That's actually a really interesting point around effectively producing hydrogen as a feedstock for ammonia. I mean, obviously, kind of transportation and storage of hydrogen has really been raised by the industry as a key challenge for establishing any kind of international trade. So is your kind of perspective that shipping hydrogen as ammonia is the only realistic option? I wouldn't say that. I mean, I do think that when we're talking about decarbonization of shipping and we're talking about marine fuels, I think that ammonia is the clear winner. It's the least expensive and easiest option that we have. It's also, it's sustainable in that you will never run out of nitrogen, seawater, wind, and sun. So we can always manufacture ammonia, but all of the other options, you know, the biofuels or the biomethane or the green methanol, these are all much smaller quantities. And for the most part, they're actually taken by different industries already. So shipping doesn't even have a chance to get them, but also they're finite it's going to be very difficult to switch over any significant amount of the fleet to methanol. That is going to become extremely expensive, very difficult to predict if you're going to have the biogenic CO2 that you need, if it's going to qualify. You know, It leads to a lot of issues. And if you don't have a product, if you don't have a fuel available, then the market can just say, well, there's nothing for me to buy. I have to use diesel. And if you have a lot of people building new ships with dual fuel engines and you don't have a fuel available for the other side, they will just use diesel, which would be terrible. I mean, that would be really setting back, you know, decarbonization. So I think ammonia is very important as a fuel for shipping. And then there are a couple other reasons that ammonia can be used as ammonia, like if it's co-firing with coal or with another fossil fuel to reduce the amount of pollution created by that fossil fuel, then I think, you know, that's also a good use of ammonia as ammonia. And it doesn't need to be cracked back into hydrogen. It's not necessary. So you're losing less as well. And then, of course, you have the fertilizer market, which already is ammonia. And so those are sort of the bigger markets to use ammonia as ammonia. There's other things, there's other specialty chemicals and whatnot, but in terms of like very large markets, I mean, shipping is gigantic. There's just not going to be enough to even fulfill the demand. But when you're talking about a shipping vector, then we also lean towards ammonia. I'm not saying it's the only one and we could definitely make some advancements, but if it's going a very short distance, then the liquefied hydrogen can work, but it has to be going a very short distance because you really lose energy daily. And I'm not sure you would make it, you would even get 2% of your energy at the end of the day if you shipped it from one side of the world to the other, because you'd be using so much energy to keep it at that temperature. It's really cold. It's 20 degrees higher than absolute zero, which is really something hard to even think about. (laughs) So, and then you have, you know, LOHC, you have the liquid organic hydrogen carriers. They have a really great argument. If you've got it set up right on both sides, you can, you you can ship the hydrogen within this almost oil-like form, and then you dehydrogenize on the other side, and you still use that same oil. You just ship it back to the original place and load it up with hydrogen again. 
So it is a carrier, it is like a wrapper for the hydrogen. It hasn't been tested at great lengths, so it's not, I mean, people are unsure and there is an issue with contamination potentially. So if you contaminate, how many times can you send the same fuel back and forth before something gets contaminated, in which case then you have to use an entirely new supply of diesel and do you, or fuel or whatever it is you're using, which has carbon in it. And does that increase the production of that fossil fuel if you're using that as a carrier? And that's an issue a lot of people have been thinking about. But then if you just want to be the most reasonable in your projections and think about what the chances are, it seems like making ammonia makes the most sense because it covers both categories of demand and it can be a carrier. And we know that to be the case. So We have 400 different ports right now handling ammonia. There's ammonia pipelines in lots of different places. And ammonia is really well understood. There'll have to be a lot of changes to the shipping industry in order to use it, not just safety protocol, but there will probably be a, a lot of changes to the vessels and potentially making the engine room completely automated without people so that you avoid any of the real safety issues that people are concerned about. So, I mean, there are a lot of things that need to be done, but it's a very well understood chemical. And, you know, even if you drop it in the ocean, which obviously you would not want to do, nobody willingly throws valuable things into the water. But if there is a spill, the damage is way less than if you spill diesel or if you spill any of the fossil fuel that, you know, we're used to. So in a lot of ways, even though people say that it is toxic, in a lot of ways, it's actually better. And then in the ways that it is not, we have ways to make it safer. That's really what we're working on is every step of the way from the production of the fuel to the port, to the bunkering, to on board, to the actual point of arrival and usage, that it's safe and that it is as efficient, safe, and inexpensive as possible. I mean, those are sort of optimization categories. And safe means really safe. Like we don't want, there's no level that's okay of people getting harmed. So it would require redesign of vessels. But redesigning a vessel, it takes one to two years. It's not the same as airplanes. I mean, this is not a 15-year activity. They literally can do it in one to two years and they're doing it right now. Okay, that's really interesting. So I suppose when it comes to hydrogen as a feedstock for kind of ammonia as a decarbonization solution, you've mentioned kind of there's a lot of existing infrastructure for ammonia import and export. How would you kind of anticipate this infrastructure would need to scale up in line with projected ammonia demand? So for the shipping sector, we've decided to analyze an extremely complex area and find a way to break it down into what we're calling green shipping corridors. So you essentially have willing participants, you have two ports that are willing to put in the infrastructure, you know, the berths, the ability to bunker. And you essentially create a working model of moving ammonia and also using ammonia as a fuel from one port to the other. And from that sort of demonstration, you know, probably being as safe as possible and having a lot more backup and a lot more, you know, triple tie in your shoes, you start with that and see where you run into any kind of issues or what can be optimized. And then 
you do that. And when you have something that seems like a pretty good model running in maybe three places, then it's something you can expand further. And at the same time, you know, the production of the fuel is expanding. So we're not going to have fuel in any great quantities until very late 20s to have, you know, lots of green ammonia. So it means that it's going to scale with the new ships. As the new ships come on, then new fuel comes on and, you know, it it takes a long time. So it will be a, you know, 10, 15 year process to move these ships from fossil fuels to green fuel. And not all of them will be completely green. I mean, and, you know, for short distances, they may have batteries. Some of them may use hydrogen for short, like a ferry could use hydrogen. So, I mean, there's lots of, basically shipping needs to do whatever it can because they do have a lot of different types of ships. Ammonia is definitely best for the container shipping and the tankers, but for the other, like the cruises and the ferries, and there's just so many types of ships. I think it's all horses for courses. I mean, they're going to have to find whatever it is they can get their hands on that's green enough and find what fits best for that type of vessel. But thankfully, the most of the pollution is coming from the container shipping and the tankers anyway. So tackling that large block, it makes a big difference. Absolutely. And I suppose kind of it's quite interesting because it does also seem, like you say, that there is this kind of diversification of what solution is going to be best to decarbonize, you know, a very particular type of ship. You know, you can almost kind of apply that, you know, throughout the economy that something that's going to be good to decarbonize one country's grid is not necessarily going to be the same route for decarbonization for a different country. Oh, absolutely. And then if you, we want to throw SMRs in here or nuclear in any form, then that's another big difference, right? And some countries have hydro. So I think, you know, every country has a different hydrogen strategy because they have such very different resources. But at the end of the day, the reason that we have a lot of faith in ammonia is that generally speaking, they have the resources to make ammonia. And that's just not true of most of the other options on offer. I mean, one of the issues with biofuels is obviously that they compete with food for arable land and for the production of food that people need. So that's one issue. Another issue is obviously taking down old forests and then you're just, you know, growing the same bamboo again and again. It's not the same, right? It doesn't it doesn't perform the same as it keeping the old forest there. There's crazy economics that happens sometimes with these things. There's a real chance for moral hazard and you see it right now in the biofuel market in Europe, people are The cost of biofuel, I'm talking about like leftover oil from cooking vegetables. The cost of that oil is so high that people are mixing a little bit with oil that they buy at the grocery store and then selling it as biofuel. And obviously, that is not the most efficient way to decarbonize. So we do have to worry, you know, whenever we put incentives in place for anything, how they can possibly be, how they can be manipulated and where the moral hazards are. I mean, in a lot of cases, it's very obvious what will happen, but you kind of have to think like the criminal <laughs> in order to put good regulations in place. And I suppose kind of that's also one of the areas where when we kind of talk about these green ammonia projects, it's almost kind of an expansion of the ammonia market rather than necessarily creating kind of further competition between ammonia for fertilizers, ammonia for shipping, ammonia for power. Yeah, I think it's an absolutely an expansion. And I would go further and predict that Ammonia is probably going to be blue 
because it's blue now and people are going to want to just put carbon capture equipment on top of the same existing assets. Nobody wants stranded assets. And then they will do what they can to you know, reduce the carbon. And then maybe they'll have to do offsets to get to a reasonable amount that's been reduced, but most likely it'll end up being blue. It'll be coming from natural gas, not coming from upstream wind and solar. And that's just the fact of the market because the way that ammonia is made right now, it's captive. The same company that owns the gas is making the hydrogen that's making the ammonia. So I can't like go knock on their door and, and ask them to buy my green hydrogen because obviously they've got their assets in place. So they're going to try to optimize those assets and that's going to be making it blue. So there will be competition between blue and green to make fertilizer. But I think that it just will fall into regional areas or contracts that already existed and, you know, a changing of the product. So the currently ammonia is mostly gray, but I do think a lot of it will become blue if it's used for fertilizer just because of the captivity currently and the relationships between the sellers and the buyers. And I think that ammonia, it's just overused. I mean, even 20 years ago, I did a pro bono project on the Pearl River Delta. And the majority of the pollution in there was a non-point agricultural runoff. It was because people were using 10 times the amount of fertilizer they needed. And they do that because they just think, well, if a little bit is good, then a lot is better. And also they can see a yield increase, like 3 to 4% better yield if I put on a lot more fertilizer. But eventually it takes all of the topsoil away. That just run into the water. The fresh water is contaminated also. It's polluted. And you have the topsoil is gone. And in the world today, we are facing a real lack of topsoil. It's a problem. So there are other fertilizers, there are other technologies that people are looking at. Also, just using more compost and using more manure and using oxygen because oxygen can actually speed up that process of composting. So one of the things that we'd like to do with our projects, because they are deserts, we would like to green them. And so we have extra oxygen when we split the water into the hydrogen and oxygen. And then we also have a lot of leftover potable water. So the use of those two and just small amounts of ammonia, we can actually green these deserts that currently don't even really have grass. And we can do it in a regenerative fashion. So it's basically a combination of some new technologies and very old technologies. The idea of letting land lay fallow, you know, like having one seventh of your land that's not working because it needs to revive. It needs needs to rest, essentially. You know, obviously, we don't do that the way that we make things in the world today. We squeeze every penny out. And at some point, you know, you're, you're just, you're, the resource is ruined. It's completely destroyed. And then people have to move away because they can't grow food there. So we would like to turn that around. And so we don't really want to be a part of the creation of chemical ammonia for farming. We would like to be a part of other solutions for farming. That's actually really interesting. I mean, kind of, you know, it's, it's kind of moving into that sort of circular economy, really. Yeah. So kind of with regard to kind of green hydrogen projects, I mean, you've mentioned, you know, kind of the use of byproducts from production to effectively kind of green the surrounding land. What would you say are some of the other impacts 
of these mega projects for the countries in which they are cited? Well, it's different in each country, but we obviously are, are seeking to optimize the sort of not the returns necessarily, but to optimize the impact on all stakeholders. So that is inclusive of the communities, of course, not just the shareholders, but anyone who is impacted at all by the project. We would like to optimize their experience. And we have actually signed a pretty cutting edge agreement with the Murning people in Australia for our second project in Australia, Western Green Energy Hub. That's the 50 gigawatt plus one. It's rather large. And they have a share of the project, an actual ownership of the project. They have a permanent board seat. And we've signed a charter with them so that we can't do anything to their land that they don't approve of. And there's been a a lot of problems in Australia, which I'm sure you've probably heard about. With mining companies in particular, they're already extractive. So they're you know, they're digging up the land, they're taking things away, and it's not pretty. <laughs> but they also have not been very careful about areas that are important to the native title holders, to the traditional owners of the land. And, you know, it's like burial sites, or it's just, you know, places of resonance for them. And, you know, recently, there was a mining company that blew up a really important site. And so the CEO stepped down or was fired. But we really are trying to be sort of a best in class example for how to partner with traditional owners. And instead of looking at them as an obstacle or thinking, how can I satiate them and still have a good project? We really look at it with them. And it's easier. (laughs) It's a lot easier to actually work together because the nice thing about hydrogen and ammonia is that we don't have to be, it's not extractive, right? We put up the turbines and the solar and they have maybe a 25 year life, but then they can be recycled or you could be recharged, but you could also be removed because, you know, the wind and the sun that come back every year, we don't take anything away permanently from the land. But we offer a lot, not just jobs and the protection of the land, but, you know, we will have green electrons and green hydrogen. So that means that they can live in an entirely green community where the transportation and all of the energy sources are green. And that attracts also, besides the supply chain, that attracts steel companies. Steel companies have often gone around the world and tried to find places with really low costs of energy. They were dirty forms of energy at the time. But now, because you you do have a CBAM in Europe, which is a tax on the energy, it's essentially a tax on the energy used in the production of anything like steel. So people will be wanting to make green steel. And that means that they will go to the place that has the cheapest green electrons and green hydrogen. And so we will attract people like steel or possibly aluminum, other really high energy users to our sites. And we plan to do as much of the circular economy as we can. So with steel, right now, if you buy a wind turbine, 220 meter wind turbine, like we are looking to put up, you're basically shipping air. I mean, they roll it into a it's just rolled up air and it's really inefficient. So if you had a steel company on site, you could provide green hydrogen suits in order to make the steel. Then you take the steel from them and roll your own towers and then you're recycling it as well. 
I mean, you really do have a circular economy there. And it really takes out a lot of the waste that happens in shipping around things that are not fully finished or that, you know, are awkward to ship. But also, you know, it's a much less pollutive way to make steel. And shipping is sort of lying under everything. But a lot of the emissions, I mean, the biggest amount of emissions come from heavy industry like steel. So any way that you can make it easier for steel companies to switch to green is going to have a huge impact on our ability to decarbonize. And I suppose one of the kind of questions there is, does that mean necessarily that kind of heavy industries are going to kind of move out of their kind of traditional bases toward kind of areas where you can produce green hydrogen at the lowest cost? Absolutely. I think a lot of industries, and this has happened, this has happened for a long time. I mean, if you look at the aluminum smelters, a lot of them are in sort of Eastern Europe, Russia, places with low costs of power, subsidized power, even like Saudi. And people have awful, have have also, not awful, but sometimes it is awful. People have also obviously moved around for inexpensive labor. That has been actually the driver for most companies that make products. They've moved to different countries in order to take advantage of less expensive labor. This is not the case for our projects. We will not be offering inexpensive labor, but we do have really inexpensive green electrons and hydrogen and and ammonia for especially chemicals if, if they're needed and also for the shipping. But we're also concerned about the entire sort of ESG package. It's not just about the energy. We're not happy if we go home and we just decarbonized because we also want to have, you know, happy, healthy employees and a social dynamic that is healthy and happy and have basically optimized experience for anybody who's working for or living near or the child of someone that they're near our projects. And we have the opportunity to do that because they are so large and because we are building the fundamental infrastructure that can allow for everything to be run in a clean way. So we really are looking at all of the aspects and governance as well, which is when the traditional owners sort of come into it. All of our projects have a type of traditional owner. So even in Oman, Oman is obviously, it's a sultanate, but there are about 50 different states in Oman and they are, I don't think they would use the word tribe, but different affiliations and many of them are nomadic. So they might not stay in one state. They might do a certain circle around several, but we spoke with them directly about what it is that they wanted, what it is we could do for them, how this could be a positive project. And it was fantastic. I mean, they had great ideas. And I think, you know, I think it doesn't even occur to some companies to do that. <laughs> but we found it to be much easier when you go to the people directly and instead of anticipating an obstacle, think about it as, you know, it could be a jumping board. I mean, this could be it could be something that is actually a use case. Someone, we actually might be producing something that is actually useful for the area, like potable water. And I think we just try to keep that in mind. And each area is different, but also has a lot in common because of the traditional owners and the Bedouin people in Saudi Noman. And then you've got traditional owners in Australia. It's a lot of similar situations. And funnily enough, I mean, we work with the Department of Energy in the US and in Canada. And there are obviously First Nations there as well. 
And hydrogen is turning out to be a, a really great way to sort of invigorate the economies of these people who have in the past obviously been exploited and had their land taken and lots of terrible things. But even when we try to make up for that because you have like reservations or you have the ability to have, you know, gambling and sell cigarettes or, I mean, it's just the stuff that (laughs) the things that they chose to make it up to different Indian populations is just crazy. I mean, so I feel it's such a much better fit for people who, what they have in common the most is that they really love the land, right? I mean, they don't even feel really that the land even can be owned. The land is everything. And, you know, we could, we can't come up with a way for that to be a good situation for them so far. I mean, it's just, it's mind boggling what people have thought makes sense. But now it's actually quite a good fit because, you know, we don't really need to damage the land at all. And in fact, we give them all the tools and ability to protect it. And so I think that it fits really well for everyone. Thank you again, Alicia, for your time discussing these projects, Intercontinental's role in really kind of developing this circular economy based around green hydrogen and green ammonia. So I suppose just to kind of wrap things up, could you tell us maybe what you think the most exciting development for hydrogen is in the coming decade? I think the most exciting thing is the opportunity for a number of countries in the global South that may have one or two export products or really not very much at all could potentially be real leaders in renewable energy because there's now something that they can actually export and they can also use for their own infrastructure. I think that that is really exciting. I mean, not only does decarbonization help the whole world, but there are ways that these countries don't even need to suffer by having less energy or more highly priced energy or suffer because of what the West has done to the world. If they have any kind of renewables, which a lot of them do, then this is a whole new economy for them and a clean one at that. So I think that's really exciting. Thank you again, Alicia. And we look forward to speaking with you soon. Thank you to all of our listeners. Don't forget to subscribe for the latest HE Live episodes. For more news and analysis, be sure to subscribe to Hydrogen Economist and follow us on social media for more updates.